everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. You can, of course, support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And that gives you access to bonus content and extended interviews. And it just also, of course, lets you support the show. You can also become YouTube members, and that gives you access to special badges and emojis, which is always a great time. So on this show, we are having a freed Chevron prisoner who will be joining us soon, Stephen Donziger, who is free at last. As people who watch the show know, Stephen Donziger is a human rights and environmental activist and lawyer and former journalist. He was locked up. His crime was successfully suing Chevron for poisoning the people of Ecuador. We're going to get into this in more detail shortly, but he's finally free after over 900 days of being either behind bars or under house arrest wearing an ankle monitor. And we also have joining us Paul Pasimino, who is associate director at Amazon Watch. He has overseen its Clean Up Ecuador campaign since 2007. He has been a professional human rights, corporate accountability, and environmental justice advocate for over 25 years. He has been Columbia country specialist for Amnesty International since 1995 served on staff at Human Rights Watch Americas, and was the Guatemala Chiapas Program Director at the SEVA Foundation for seven years. And he's also sued the CIA, and we're going to talk about that during the second half of the show. But first, we're going to bring in Paul and Stephen. Welcome. Hey there. Hi. Thanks so much for joining. Good to see you. Good to see you. Stephen, what does it feel like? Tell us, um, you've been, you're free, uh, what was it like to wake up without an ankle monitor around your foot? I've been kind of really excited for the last few days in anticipation of, of having my 993-day sentence end. Um, and I, w- I haven't been sleeping that well. And then that's been exacerbated by the fact that in the last few days, I was still getting calls in the middle of the night. The, the day I was getting released at 9 a.m., I got a call at 5.20 in the morning from the halfway house asking me to verify I was actually home. You know, and then, I mean, this is a really crazy story, but I literally took an Uber from the Upper West Side of Manhattan to the halfway house in the Bronx to get my release papers. It was like the last hour of my detention. And while I was in the Uber, I got a call from the prison monitoring center in Indiana asking me to do a biometric check-in while I was on the way to get my release papers. And by the way, we have video of that, which we haven't posted yet. The Phone calls were incessant. So, you know, I was so excited for it all to end. It was so hard to live that way. You know, like ostensibly the idea of a halfway house, you know, monitoring someone on home confinement, which was my situation. The idea was to help the person, support the person to to transition to freedom. And I felt like I was being surveilled and harassed uh, at a very high rate at all hours of the day and night. You know, I always wondered if it was me or everyone Everyone on home confinement was being treated this way. And I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think I probably was on some list of high profile detainees that they needed to be extra tough with. 
But then I would meet people, you know, regular people in the halfway house who, who, when I was there, like to get a urine test or something. And I would ask them, hey, do you guys get calls like all hours of the night? And they'd say, yeah. And, you know, it's a system. Um, I think it's a extremely abusive and counterproductive if the purpose is to rehabilitate people. But I think there's a logic to it, which is like, we control you and we're going to keep you on edge and psychologically destabilized. That's a long way of answering your question. I'm really happy to be, have that behind me. Right. No, but I think that's important. And of course, you know, you've been persecuted and prosecuted and your treatment has been condemned by Nobel laureates and Greenpeace, the UN. But at the same time, you also have access that so many other people don't, despite Chevron's best efforts. And I'm not trying to downplay all that they've done to you, but I'm always shocked. Like, this is a Harvard lawyer who, yes, really took on the system and so is a major threat. But you still do have access and education that so many other people don't have. And I I just like shudder to imagine how much more abusive they are with others. I think that's an important point. Um, you know, I, they violated me for something that really wasn't a violation when the halfway house started to monitor me back in December. And I think they were trying to send me a message. And I was like, I can't just take this laying down or they'll just keep abusing me and I'll end up back in prison. So I challenged the violation. You know, there was there's kind of an internal disciplinary process that isn't exactly fair. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever won one of these hearings when you get violated in, in, in the halfway house for something, you know, minor. And I challenged the heck out of it. And even though I didn't technically win, um, I think I established myself and said, look, if you want to mess with me, I am going to challenge you. And that's work. You know, it's processing paper. It's having a hearing. It's work for them. And like, you know, I, I got the sense the staff at this privately owned halfway house, I mean, their main purpose was like a lot of people were not that into their jobs, um, even though I will laud them all because they were always professional. I mean, they did their jobs as the policy designed the jobs to be. They were professional about it. But the policy, in my view, was all backwards. Um, so, you know, going through that experience, really being on the other side of the fence in the criminal justice system was really I didn't like it, but it was fascinating. And I'll say this, people, very few people know this, but in 1996, I edited a book called The Real War on Crime. It was published by Harper Perennial back in the early days of my career. I was a criminal defense lawyer, a public defender in Washington, D.C. And I experienced this system as a lawyer, as a policy person, and now as an inmate, same system. And the different angles on this really difficult system that, you know, was designed to brutalize people. I, mean, I could give you so many stories of what I witnessed in prison. Um, it, it really it concerns me and it's something I deeply care about and something I want to get more involved in the, you know, in the years I have remaining in my career. Yeah. And as Jean Catherine, the great points out, most people in prison have never had a trial by jury. They make plea deals, which is a whole other thing that we can talk about in a whole other show. That most people don't know this, but in federal court in the United States, the conviction rate is 98%. You understand that's exactly the same as the conviction rate in China. So, you know, it's it, there's so many. We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prison population in this country. And like I saw this in prison. I just want to make this one point, if I can. 
which is, you know, there, look, most people in prison did something to violate the criminal code. Okay. It's not like they were being set up and framed. I mean, some are like me, but the vast majority are not, but this is the key issue. If you're sentenced to 30 years in prison for a minor nonviolent, say, drug conspiracy offense, you know, maybe you deserve a year or two or three. Okay. But if you're in there for 30, to me, here's your three, two year 30, you're a political prisoner because it's politics that creates these incredibly long sentences. The United States has no more crime than any other industrialized country. Our sentences are multiple times the typical sentences in other countries, which explains why we have such a high prison population. Well, what is next? I mean, you have a lot of work cut out for you from criminal justice reform, incarceration. But in terms of the Amazon, this is why I'm excited to talk to both of you. What's next moving forward? Because at the block party that you had last night, Stephen, which was great, and I posted the video and I urge everyone to watch that after this, if you haven't already, Susan Sarandon spoke, Will Menneker, Christian Smalls. It was great. I gave a little spiel. But you mentioned that you are a weapon of mass distraction because you are very useful in many ways for Chevron, but because they can fight you, they're not fighting the actual judgment. I mean, they are fighting the judgment, but basically, instead of paying the people of Ecuador, where are we in that case? Well, first of all, I want to say that, you know, the focus needs to shift from Stephen Donziger to the people who have been poisoned by Chevron and have been poisoned for decades in Ecuador, indigenous peoples and farmer communities. There's tens of thousands of people um, who are exposed daily, multiple times to oil waste, cancer-causing oil waste left by the company when it operated there from 1964 to 1992. You know, this isn't just a minor problem. I mean, people rely on the forest for their sustenance. They generally don't have cash or money. and They don't have faucets like we have in our homes in the North for the most part. Um, so they are exposed multiple times a day in the, in the air they breathe and the food they eat and the water they drink and where they bathe to cancer-causing substances. And literally thousands of people have died of cancer over the years this has happened. Um, I would argue it is the world's worst oil-related catastrophe. And I wanna remind people that it's not an accident. This was done by deliberate design by Texaco, now Chevron, the way they engineered the system to operate. And Chevron was the exclusive operator and designer of this system. From, From the time it was put in to the time it ended, 1992. The pollution is still out there now in the year 20, what are we in 2022? I can't believe, you know, I was, I was detained in 2019. I can't believe it. it's now 2022. The pollution is still out there. Um, you can see it, go down there and see it. It's grotesque. It's apocalyptic. There's literally lakes of oil on the floor of the Amazon rainforest in certain areas. There's hundreds of pits. Chevron put these pits to put the drilling muds in, the, the waste from the drilling of the wells. Then they installed pipes into the sides of these pits to run the contents off into the streams and rivers that the local people drank out of. And they knew this was the way things operated. So it was clearly foreseeable people would die. By the way, this is the very definition of ecocide, which is a potential new atrocity crime. And it's still out there. So, you know, the way Chevron dealt with it is the people of Ecuador won in court. I was one of the lawyers. I helped them. 
It is not the Stephen Donziger case. It is the case of the people of Ecuador. Um, to try to distract attention from their environmental crimes and this, this, you know, the fact people literally were dying because of their decisions, they tried to make me into a foil. I mean, there's literally an email from 2009 from a company official saying our long-term strategy is to demonize Donziger. They never wanted to litigate on the merits. They never wanted to litigate the facts. They tried to cheat and deceive the entire trial in Ecuador, which lasted eight years. I was down there you know, dozens and dozens of times for court sessions. Um, they, they're not serious about the law. They see the court system as just another thing they can manipulate in the, as a weapon in the interest of their larger power game to make as much money as possible at the expense of vulnerable communities. So my detention, to sort of make a long story short, is a function of this strategy. And when they started to attack me 10 years ago, and we kept going, and they sued me for $60 billion, largest amount any American's ever been sued for. We kept going. You know, they got a judge to deny me a jury, a former tobacco lawyer named Lou Kaplan, and he found me guilty um, of various crimes in a civil case without a jury, um, largely based on a lying Chevron witness paid two million bucks or more by the company, Alberto Guerra. Well, they tried to pull that stunt on me, and we kept going. Um, we kept going after the Supreme Court of Ecuador and the Supreme Court of Canada validated the Ecuador judgment, completely rejected Kaplan's preposterous decision, in my view. Um, and then we kept going, and they were under a lot of threat, and they, their latest scheme was to concoct this way to lock me up and take my passport. And they did that by getting Kaplan to order me to turn over my computer and cell phone to them. And when I appealed that order, by the way, I don't, I respect the judiciary, I respect the rule of law. I don't stub my nose at courts. Okay. I'm a lawyer, but it is proper, ethical, appropriate for a lawyer to appeal an order, which is what I did. And for appealing an order that I believe is unlawful while it was pending on appeal, Kaplan charged me personally with a crime of disobeying his order that I turned over my electronic devices. He then took the charges to the U.S. attorney. He refused to prosecute me. No lawyer has ever been charged with a crime for what I did, which is appealing a civil discovery order. He then appointed a private law firm to prosecute me in the name of the U.S. government. Law firm's name is Seward and Kissel. Remember that. They had Chevron as a client. Kaplan never disclosed that. So essentially, I was prosecuted directly by Chevron in the name of the U.S. government. So when all of this stuff didn't work and they kept taking more and more extreme measures to detain me, I was detained in my opinion, without a le proper legal basis, by Chevron itself operating through one of its many law firms, which did this supposedly in the name of the U.S. government. And folks, this has never happened before. We can't ever let it happen again. I am a successful human rights lawyer, jailed, detained for almost three years in the United States of America for helping my clients win a major pollution judgment against Chevron. It's an outrage. The United Nations has determined that it's illegal. They've demanded the U.S. government release me. Um, they demanded that there not be a private corporate prosecution in this country. The U.S. government has ignored this decision. Attorney General Garland has refused our demands that he take back the private prosecution from Chevron. And we're now asking President Biden to pardon me because it's become so dysfunctional. By the way, exonerate me. I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. So pardon sort of implies I did something wrong exonerate me via a pardon 
And President Biden thus far has ignored um, a letter from 120 NGOs, human rights groups, environmental groups, Amnesty International, Amazon Watch, where Mr. Posse Mino works. He's a good friend. I usually call him Paul. Um, <laughs> and we can't get the U.S. government to obey the law when it comes to Steve Donziger and Chevron. And why is this happening? We had a corporate capture of an element of our judiciary in this country, and it's really frightening. And people need to pay close attention to this. It's a playbook that the fossil fuel industry plans to use again and again and again, as much as it needs to, against successful advocates, activists, campaigners. You know, people say, oh, that's kind of an extreme case. Yeah, it's damn extreme what happened to me. It's never happened before. But you know what? That's not the plan. Their plan is to make the new extreme slowly become the new normal. Okay, that's what happened with Trump and so many things. It was so extreme until you just got used to it. Like all this crazy stuff seemed a little more normal, didn't it? That's what they want to do with my case. They want to make what they did to me the new normal and use it to intimidate, try to intimidate the heck out of people who are the frontline defenders of the earth trying to save our planet. You know, one a player that you alluded to but didn't mention specifically in that, which is key to this whole thing, is Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, right? So Chevron's law firm not only found a way to deny the people of Ecuador access to justice by preemptively suing Stephen and playing into Chevron's story of demonizing him, they built their entire reputation on, this is how we can get big corporations out of liabilities. We'll figure out a way to demonize the opponents. We'll invalidate them. And Stephen is the first case when you go to their website and you look up their crisis management team, it's look at how we got Chevron out of trouble by demonizing this lawyer. And you cannot underestimate how important that is to the industry, to the law firms that work with them. These fossil fuel mob lawyers, as I like to call them, Randy Mastro, Ted Boutros. But it gets even worse because, as Stephen pointed out, they, they so manipulated and abused the court system to allow the Southern District of New York to violate, in full view of the world and the Biden administration, everyone to violate Stevens' rights as a case test for what they would do to lawyers who could challenge the fossil fuel industry. And now one of those same lawyers who most likely drafted these outrageous subpoenas that went after Amazon Watch and other groups is going to be appointed to the federal bench in the same district, Rita, uh, not Rita Glavin, um, Jennifer Reardon, She's going to have an office down the hall from Kaplan and Preska. It's like a cabal of these pro-corporate lawyers controlling a district that has shown it will violate the rights of U.S. citizens in full view of the public with impunity because no one is stepping back and stepping up against them to prevent this from happening. And it's incredibly chilling. And one other uh, feature, disturbing feature of what's happened to me is, first of all, you know, I've served 993 days in detention in prison at home. The longest previous sentence ever given a lawyer for my offense, and I, I, this gentleman was guilty, I believe I'm innocent, but even if I was guilty, the longest sentence previously given was 90 days of home confinement. I mean, there's never been a lawyer who spent a day in jail other than me for this offense. And I've now in total served over 10 times the amount of the longest previous sentence. It's clearly corporate retaliation facilitated by two federal judges. And one other thing, 
you know, it is highly unusual, almost unprecedented for a any citizen with no criminal record, that's me, to have to serve any kind of uh, jail sentence on a misdemeanor, period. It is even more unusual, and I think unprecedented, we haven't found one case, for a citizen to be forced to um, serve his or her jail sentence in the rare case he or she might get one prior to the appeal being heard and decided. And I have now, look, their whole purpose was to put me in jail and use me as an example, make me suffer, me and my family suffer as much as they could make us suffer. So I had to go to jail before my appeal could be heard. They felt a little guilty, so they expedited my appellate argument. So I went to prison October 27th of last year. On November 30th, the, there was an argument on my appeal of my conviction, which was again in a non-jury trial where I couldn't present a defense. It didn't meet even the basic standards of due process. Private prosecution by Chevron. And that appeal was heard. And do you know that they still, it was expedited on the theory that I was in prison. If they reversed the conviction, I could quickly get out. They still haven't ruled. They have waited for me to serve my entire sentence of six months, and they haven't even ruled on my appeal. So what happens if they reverse my conviction and I've already served my entire sentence? Where's the justice in that? And it's like, this is what's happened every step of the way, because the system has become so, in my view, captured by Chevron and its law firms. And, you know, people say, well, why are you asking for a pardon? Well, one of the reasons we're asking for a pardon is because the legal system here is so dysfunctional and I would argue dystopian and so captured by Chevron. I'm talking about the part that's dealing with me here in New York, in Manhattan, that there's nowhere else to turn. I mean, it's like the judges who are doing this are protected by their colleagues who you appeal to. And, you know, while there are some good judges on this court, those that are controlling this case, they're all in. And the only way to correct this violation of the law, international law, U.S. domestic law, the rule of principles of the rule of law in the United States as regards this human rights lawyer is for the executive branch to get involved, a pardon to issue, an exoneration to happen. It is clear the judiciary is incapable of ruling fairly on this case. And what about the people of Ecuador, the fact that right now, I mean, this is so scary. They're being poisoned right now, right? It's not just that this happened. They're still subjected to this. What can be done about that? Well, first, they're still extracting oil from that region. And Chevron is still refining that crude. 13% of the crude that comes to California. Well, first of all, most of the oil that comes from the Amazon goes to the United States. The majority of that is refined here in California. And Chevron is one of the three top refiners of that oil. So every day, they're still profiting off of oil extraction where they poisoned people deliberately. And they say, you know, we left Ecuador, we don't operate there anymore, but they're still making money off of the destruction of the rainforest and these indigenous lives. So that's one thing. But what, as far as what happens next, is there are still other companies who have their sights on the same thing that Chevron did and they are looking at what's happened to Stephen, and they're looking at what's happened when people fight back. And they're saying, well, here's how we can calculate how much it's going to cost us to get away with doing that and not have to be operate responsibly and not have to stop drilling. There should be any drilling in the Amazon at this point. 
we know we have to leave 80% of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground to avoid catastrophic rise in global temperatures. So there shouldn't even be new drilling in the Amazon, period. But even if there were to be, the companies that operate have now been given a license to behave in the same manner because Chevron, who admitted to the crime, isn't held to account. And that's why this case really honestly is the one that's too big to fail, because the precedent that it sets for every one of these categories, from environmental protection, indigenous rights, the rights of, of human rights lawyers and other lawyers to fight back in the United States, of people to even report on what's happened, they are all at risk because of this case. And that's why it's so frustrating that someone like Biden, who you know campaigned on holding the fossil fuel industry accountable, has been so silent in all, despite so many voices raising alarm at this. But, you know, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I do want to say that what they've done, and I, I think Stephen made this excellent point yesterday in his speech, is they their work has backfired because this case is now, re, has a renewed life to it because of what they've done to Stephen, because so many people who wrote it off before didn't have the time or the energy, whatever, to look back into what really happened. Now they're looking at it going, wow, this really does have terrible implications. And I can't believe the level of abuse that's so brazen. That must mean there's more to this case that's going on. And so they've, it's revitalized it. And the people of Ecuador have an opportunity with the new allies to reignite the pursuit of justice in that case in a way that's going to allow us, I think, to push through barriers that would have been closed to us only three or four years ago before Stephen went through the ordeal he's had to suffer. And just so people know legally, you asked where the case is at. You know, there's a judgment from Ecuador against Chevron. Chevron wanted the case there. They accepted jurisdiction there. They promised to pay any adverse judgment. Okay, they were now refusing to pay. The judgment is for approximately $9.5 billion plus potentially interest could take it up to $12 billion at this point. And the, the judgment um, creditors, that is the indigenous peoples and farmer communities in Ecuador, have a legal right to go to another country where Chevron has assets and ask those countries' courts to make the Ecuador judgment essentially the same as a national court judgment of that country. And then they can enforce it against Chevron's assets in that particular jurisdiction. So Chevron operates in many, many countries around the world. For example, in Canada, Chevron has billions and billions of dollars of assets, more than enough to cover the, the cost of this judgment. And one reason why I think Chevron is still so nervous about this case and has hired 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to attack me and my clients is because they know they face enormous risk. And, you know, look, I'm not saying it's going to be an easy road for the people of Ecuador. I don't think this should go on a day longer. I call on Chevron again to comply with this judgment in the venue where you wanted the trial held and clean up or pay into the fund to clean up the poisonous, toxic mess you left that's killing people. They should do that now. But if they don't, the people of Ecuador have a legal right with their lawyers. By the way, I'm no longer a lawyer. I was disbarred over all this, which is a whole other injustice, but with their other lawyers to file lawsuits, enforcement lawsuits, to see Chevron's assets in other countries around the world. 
which is going to be a lot easier now that that Kaplan, the lid has been blown off the lie of Kaplan's bogus RICO case and the bribery and fraud that Chevron engaged in to try to demonize Stephen. They don't have that talking point anymore. And you've seen it in coverage, too. Yeah. And Katie, I, I have to go in a couple of minutes. So I just want to mention, if, I, if you'll let me, a couple of ways people can help. Paul can get into this more. First, I want to salute Paul Posimino and everyone at Amazon Watch, which is an NG, a fabulous NGO based in Oakland that does leading frontline work and um, alliance with indigenous groups all over the Amazon basin to help save the forest and save indigenous cultures. And I've had the privilege of working with these folks for, I don't know, 20 years now, closely. Um, they're allies of the indigenous communities in Ecuador that, that brought the lawsuit against Chevron and have helped so much along the way. Paul, Kevin Koenig, Leila Salazar, uh, Tosa Sultani, and many others. Um, without groups like Amazon Watch, lawyers like me could not do this work. I mean, these are the groups that really are down in the, in the, um, in the, you know, in the weeds and the grassroots with these communities um, in ways that lawyers aren't really trained to do. So they're awesome. One way to help is to continue to support Amazon Watch. Another way to help is to make sure that my defense fund has enough funds to pay lawyers to protect me from future Chevron attacks. Just because my detention is over, it's not, the danger isn't over. There's a civil case pending against me and we need funds to make sure Chevron understands that to get to me, they're gonna have to go through a really good legal team. And then on top of that, Funds are needed to help the Ecuadorian communities with the other lawyers working on this, you know, explore and execute on their legal options to make sure the judgment gets paid. One other way you can help me is I just started a Substack last week. Um, for those who don't know what, I think your your viewers probably know what Substack is because you have, a, you have, a, don't you have a Substack? I think yeah, do. I do, but mostly Useful Idiots has one. Yeah, exactly. So, um, it's at stephendonziger.substack. Um, check it out. I have my first post up there. I used to be a journalist before I became a lawyer. I worked for United Press International and wrote for a bunch of newspapers from Central America. So I'm going to try to get back to my roots and free of corporate censorship, kind of emulate what Katie's been doing successfully for a number of years and commentate and speak and investigate. And you know, a lot of it's going to be about the case. A lot of it's going to be about prison and the criminal justice system, and there'll be about other sort of issues related to climate, you know, human rights and justice that I really want to speak out about. Great. And we'll put a link to that in the description. Well, thank you, Stephen. We know you're so busy. Thank you for stopping by. It was great seeing you last night at your block party. And Paul, very kindly, was going to stick around for a little bit. Sure. Thank you, Katie, for your example, for your independent voice, your journalism, your integrity, your support. You're awesome. I really appreciate it. And Cheryl Tyler says, I was at the block party yesterday and it was amazing. There's a new energy that Stephen and Chris Smalls have ignited. Yeah, that was great. In fact, I want to have you both together on my show. That'd be great. Chris Smalls, the great labor leader, union organizer. No, he's a labor leader. Okay. And he's more than even a labor leader. I've had the opportunity to get to know him recently and we realized how much, you know, he's fighting Amazon.com. I'm fighting to save the Amazon against Chevron. Um, there's a lot of stories we've shared and a lot to learn from each other. And it's an honor to get to know him and to have him involved in this. And of course, we'll be supportive of his efforts as well. He's been on the show before, but we definitely got to get him back and love to have him on with you. So thank you again, Stephen. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye, Paul. Thank you. Bye.
So anything else that you want to talk about related to this story, then of course you're working on something else that I think people watching will really want to hear about, but want to make sure that you have a chance to say anything else that you feel like still needs to be said. Well, I just wanted to to respond a little more to the what's next thing and let people know that um, this shareholder season, actually next month, Chevron is going to face a wave of investor resolutions that are challenging its operations, its human rights crimes, its environmental practices, client effect on climate. You know, we've seen a continued share, what I would call a shareholder revolt against the entire fossil fuel industry. Last year, Exxon was really wrecked. Um, there's going to be, there is a resolution that talks about the Ecuador case. It's a resolution that actually calls for the management to agree to lower the threshold to call for a special meeting from 15% to 10% of shareholders, which is a standard thing. But the context of that resolution is to say management is mishandling so many cases, and especially the Ecuador case. It's blowing millions of dollars of shareholder money on lawyers, on bribery, on these schemes, and not actually addressing the harms that it admitted to causing in the first place. And so it should have to clean up Ecuador and it should have to meet with shareholders and the affected people to do so. And in addition to that, I'm very happy to, to add that their report, Chevron's Global Destruction, which was put together by Professor Nan, Dr. Nan Greer, which you can find at chevronsglobaldestruction.com, I think, that outlines $50 billion that Chevron owes to communities it has harmed globally. It's not just the Ecuador case. This is a pattern of the way the company operates. So when Representative Rashida Tlaib grilled CEO Worth last fall, she said, when are you going to cut the check, Mike, to all the communities that you've harmed? And he he balked. He's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I don't know what to say. He had no idea. That report is now in the congressional record, and it's a part of this shareholder resolution. And so we're going to see Chevron have to respond to that. And they've already tried to tell people not to vote for it. But interestingly enough, their response is just, oh, this is just full of lies. It should not be considered. Instead of actually responding to the, it's, it's a report based on law cases that have been brought and won. It's clearly not just made up lies. These are registered cases that Chevron has lost in Africa and Asia, in South America and other places. So that is going to be key to you know, the shareholder pressure they're going to face and the industry press needs to talk about that. And in the past, as I'd mentioned before, they, they were so, it was so easy for editors to wipe away the Ecuador case. Oh, there's a federal judge that said it was a fraud. We're not going to talk about that. You know, it's out of your story. That's back on the table. The reporting about Jennifer Reardon, the reporting that we saw about Stephen's case, there's not a question of whether or not Chevron did what it did in the Ecuadorian Amazon. They're not talking about alleged contamination anymore. They're talking about how closely they're working with the U.S. government and these judges to suppress the rights of a lawyer who beat them for polluting the Amazon. End of sentence. They polluted the Amazon. We know that. So that's a, that's a paradigm shift that we have to really take advantage of to push for enforcement of the Ecuadorian judgment. So we're going to see... This shareholder resolution, which is May, I believe May 25th, is their, is their AGM. May 21st is Global Anti-Chevron Day. So put that on your calendar, Katie, because there are going to be things happening on that day. It's a Saturday. Everywhere around the planet. The first year that we launched this with UDAP, the people affected in Ecuador, 
20 different countries had Chevron, anti-Chevron Day events on the same day, five continents, and all of them are communities harmed by this oil company. So that pressure, this global movement, shareholder revolt, the, the finally the fact that news is covering this. I believe Stephen's going on Lawrence O'Donnell tonight. They barely covered this story before, right? He's someone who actually kind of did, um, remarkably. I think the one person, yeah. That's right. And so that's got to be infuriating Chevron and the people who work for them because all the money that they spent to demonize Stephen, to criminalize him, and this is what I was writing about in a blog today on Amazon Watch, all they did was embolden him and increase his list of allies and increase his voice tenfold. He's got a, like 183,000 Twitter followers. He had no Twitter account before. I helped him set up his Twitter. There's nobody there. So all of this is to say, we are taking the momentum that they have thrown at us to destroy our resolve, to silence our work and turn it into an opportunity to push back so much harder on them. And I think that in the end, it really is going to prove to be the death blow to their attempt to escape accountability. Because when, when the Ecuadorians walk into court in any other country to enforce their judgment, which they will, Chevron is not going to be able to silence that the way they had been in the past by bringing up their bogus RICO case, which is what they've, that was their trump card, if you'll pardon the expression, right? And now they don't have that anymore. So I really want people to feel hopeful, but it takes... Like we've been given this gift of attention and power and, and focus. We can't squander it. So you're going to see people talking more and more about the Ecuador case. Uh, hopefully you're going to see members of Congress going to Ecuador, celebrities, other people getting more involved in we need justice for the people of Ecuador. And Amazon Watch has been, as Stephen mentioned, working on the ground with these communities for 25 years. And we are going to be continuing to do that and drawing attention to the fact that this case not only emblematic, but as I pointed out, this extraction is still going on and there's financing of it. So your retirement fund, if you have the, if you have one, your money with BlackRock or Vanguard, your bank, at, you know, your money at Citibank, that's all going to invest in Amazon oil extraction. And that needs to be stopped. And Chevron, the Chevron case now is a good example for them to show why they must pull support for extraction in this region. And all adds to our ability to, to eventually achieve environmental justice and protect the rainforest, which, as you know, is so vital to our climate and our survival as a species. We cannot survive the climate crisis without a healthy, thriving Amazon rainforest. It's vital to it. And by the way, Paul is going to be on a call-in. I'll put in the link after we stream, but we're going to do a call-in on Friday because we don't have time to do a call-in tonight after the show. So you'll be able to ask Paul your questions on that call-in, which is going to happen Friday. I also wanted to talk to you. Oh, it's so frustrating. I, I mean, what you guys are doing is so important, but it's also like they're still doing it right now. Yeah. It's just like, how do you, I don't even know how to, how, how are you not just enraged all the time? <laughs> Mostly I am. Yeah. You know, you have to have your little escapisms, you know, I... Yeah, it's challenging. It's just like the blood on their hands is like, it's not only they have blood on their hands, they have like fresh blood, like new blood. Like it's continuous blood. Every day. And, you know, they said famously, right, we're going to fight till hell freezes over and then fight it out on the ice. So many people have died yeah. fighting this fight. You know, I, I'm now in my 50s. I started working on this when I was, I didn't even have kids. And now my kids know about it. 
And I have a feeling they're going to be working on this campaign too. Actually, they've been, they've been at Chevron shareholder meetings fighting, but it's, it is, it is infuriating to know that their goal was just delay until they all die and go away till the people no longer support Steven because they're afraid that they get drawn into some crazy lawsuit and, and criminalize themselves until the other people really continue to just get sick and die from the cancer. Um, you know, McGovern, Jim McGovern, who's been a great ally to Stephen, he tweeted just yesterday about his freedom. He's like, Chevron has blood on its hands and we're not going to stop until they're held to account and forced to clean up. And that's key because I think he understands there's a role for the U.S. government to play, not only in protecting the rights of advocates like Stephen, but in actually forcing Chevron, a U.S. company, to do the right thing. And that's going to see that's going to be a shift that we haven't seen in a long time either. If Congress starts directing its attention to say the U.S. government has a role in enforcing a cleanup here and either make Chevron pay for it or I think they should go in and begin doing it and then get Chevron to, to pay them back because we all bear the brunt of that. I mean, we all we all bear as U.S. citizens, we bear responsibility for the actions of our, you know, our government and corporations based here and how they operate in Latin America which kind of connects a little bit to the other thing we're going to talk about, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. And that's what the Colombia case that, that we mentioned before is actually about. Right. So last time you were on here, we started talking about something which I didn't know about, but it was really cool because the last time Paul was on, you were in the comments and we like coordinated to bring you on in real time and you came on as a guest. And one of the things that you mentioned was that you were suing the CIA over Colombia. So can you talk about that case? Yeah, for sure. So... The Institute for Policy Studies is is named on the lawsuit that I've been managing and working with a couple lawyers since 2006. But really, this case goes back to the 1990s. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.